Excuse me this morning, I'm going to ask that we all stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be coming from uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 through 31. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he became as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, as I come to you right now, Lord, I come to you just thanking you for this day, Lord. I come to you just asking you, Lord God, for forgiveness of all sins, Lord God, for just each and everything I've said or done, Lord God, does not run you out in glory, Lord. I come to you, Lord God, just counting it a privilege, Lord God, to be here right now, Lord, when most of People our age, Lord God, are running after the world, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, for just keeping us, Lord God, and divinely appointing us to be here today, Lord. I come to you praying, Lord God, for this conference, Lord God. And I pray that we realize, Lord God, that, that the praise and worship and the speakers have been great, Lord God. But what really matters is the application as we leave here, Lord. I come to you, Lord God, just praying, Lord God, that you bless Dr. Piper, Lord God. And you just just let, let your Holy Spirit increase in him, Lord God, as he brings forth the word today, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. If God created us for his glory, which I tried to make a case that he did in the first talk, and if he created us that we might be fully and eternally happy in him, and if these two goals of God are not two, but one, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, And if, therefore, you have the duty to make it your lifelong vocation to be as happy as you possibly can be in God, and if that is not an easy life, but a dangerous life and a hard life, and if God has appointed that that danger and that hardness be the very means by which those who don't yet have their desires fulfilled in him get their desires fulfilled in him, then the last thing I need to exhort us to is that this life will require tremendous courage. The pursuit of your joy, the way I've been talking about it, and the way you just sang about it, if you're listening to the words, requires tremendous courage. And so I want to close our time together by talking about courage, which is what that text was about. 
And there are two other reasons I want to mention for why courage is such an urgent matter. First, when you read the Bible, especially when you read Paul and his exhortation to his young disciple, Timothy. So here I am, Paul, speaking to Timothy's. What he said was that there's coming a day, and it's here, in which courage is going to be absolutely essential because of this. Let me read it to you. First Timothy 4.3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings. And will turn away from listening to the truth. First Timothy 4.3 What does that imply about your commitment to speak the truth today? It implies that it will often be unpopular. It implies that it will often scratch where people don't itch. It implies that you will have to have a tremendous sense of settled contentment in God so that your ego can handle rejection. Many in this room are so weak-souled, you live off of other people's approval and acceptance. You haven't grown up enough yet to be your own person in Christ. And when you get a dirty look or a rolled eye or a twisted lip or a word, you feel so crushed, you're just going to abandon talking about hard things that might get you rejected. And I so long that you would see Christ as so glorious that His smile would be worth 10,000 frowns. So, I long for you to know the source and depth of courage that you're going to need as you speak into that situation. They have itching ears. They will accumulate teachers to suit their own likings. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And often when they turn away, they say mean things, belittling things. And they're good at it. They know how to make you feel like scum. In fact, Paul called himself the off-scouring of the world. You know what off-scouring is? I do a lot of the dishes in our house. I know what off-scouring is. It's the stuff you don't want to lift out of that little thing after you scoured it off. You don't want to lift out of that and take it and tap it in the, in the garbage can. You feel like that sometimes around people who give you certain looks and say certain things? And Paul said, that's me. Apostles, and how much more you and me are the off-scouring of the world expected. And then when it comes, maybe God, according to Acts 5.41, will give you the grace to do what Peter and John did. It says they walked out having been shamed and said they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to be shamed for the sake of the name of Jesus. Oh, what a revolution has to happen now in our hearts. And I'm praying it's happening. It's happening. And at the end here, when the brother comes out, 
We're going to ask for some tokens of evidence that it's been happening. So be praying that God would make it happen deep in your heart. There's a second reason besides Paul's word to Timothy here why I think this message on courage is so crucial. And it has to do with the kind of age in America in which we live. Namely, relativism and subjectivism are the air we breathe. I'm infected, you're infected. What I mean by relativism is that truth, what is right, what is good, what is beautiful, are all considered personal opinions. True for you, right for you, good for you, beautiful for you, but you can't put that on anybody. You can't commend that to anybody else as required for them to believe or do. So relativism means it's relative to you. Truth is relative to you, and goodness is relative to you, and beauty is relative to you, and right and wrong are relative to you, but not yours is not necessarily mine. And anybody who presumes to stand up and say a truth or a beauty or a goodness or a right that everybody in the world should embrace is called what? Absolutely arrogant. That's the air we breathe to speak the truth of Christ that all should bow to in our day will get you labeled in the most horrific terms, get you called not only blatantly arrogant, but dangerous, fostering hate crimes. Subjectivism, what I mean by that is the correlative cultural assumption that in that milieu, me, the subject, I, the subject, decide for me the right, the wrong, the good, the beautiful. And you don't present anything to me that I need to bow before. I do not have to give an account for what I regard as right and wrong and good and true and beautiful. I don't have to give an account to any objective standard outside myself. I don't need to submit myself to anything outside myself because truth is mine. It's in here. You can't put it in here and I don't bow to your truth. You put those two things together, a relativism and a a subjectivism, and you have American culture. And into that, Jesus sends you with a gospel to which everybody must bow or perish. And if you don't move with the gospel into that, with courage, you will perish. At least at the horizontal cultural level, you will shrivel up and die. It takes some kind of soul today to open your mouth in a dorm room or at a party or at a ball game or in a classroom with a strong-minded atheistic professor or whatever. It takes some soul to speak gospel truth today into relativistic, subjectivistic atmosphere. To be accused of pride is a hard thing, and you will be. There's no other getting around it. You may be the humblest, most meek personality around, 
But if you speak gospel truth with confidence that others should believe what you are commending, you'll be called arrogant. I'll give you an illustration. September a year ago, the Southern Baptists promoted prayer among the 15 million Southern Baptists for Jewish people to believe and be saved. This turned up in almost every editorial page in the country. And the accusation everywhere was, this is the most presumptuous, arrogant, audacious, non-pluralistic, non-culturally sensitive thing for anybody to do is to take one group of religious people and call 15 million others to pray that Jewish people should should believe in their Messiah. So it was a it was an editorial on the lead editorial page of the Minneapolis Tribune. There are hardly any Southern Baptists in Minnesota. I read this article, which called this arrogant, and for, for the first time, I got something published in the Minneapolis Tribune. I've written letters to the Minneapolis Tribune for 25 years. Never did they publish a single letter that I ever wrote. But I said to my people the Sunday after that appeared in the Saturday paper, I said, I'm going to write this afternoon a response to that. And they have a response page the next Saturday. And uh, would you pray that it would get published? And it did. And uh, I'll read you a paragraph from what I said, and then I will tell you what happened. Christianity is defined by the Jewish scriptures. This is now printed word for word in the Tribune. This is the only newspaper in our city. Christianity is defined by the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament. According to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. He is the yes to all God's promises. He is the Messiah. And I actually gave a string of one, two, three, four, five, six texts, and they printed them all. To reject him is to reject God the Father. And to confess him as Lord of your life is to be reconciled to God. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. This truth was not the creation of the apostles John and Paul. They learned it from Jesus. When a non-Jewish centurion came to Jesus for the healing of his servant, Jesus was so moved by this Gentile's faith, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I have not found such faith within anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom as Jewish people, will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the end of the quote from Matthew 8.10. In other words, a Gentile who believes in Jesus will be at the table of the inheritance with Abraham in the age to come, but a Jew who does not believe will be cast into outer darkness. And I close like this. In fact... Even though it is perceived as offensive by many Jewish people that Southern Baptist initiative call for prayer that Israel would believe on her Messiah, this is a profoundly loving act. For 
He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is why the apostles prayed. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Romans 10.1 True Christians lay down their lives for Jewish people and will not settle for the half-love of working only for their prosperity in this life. To which all the clergy downtown, all the big churches, about one, two, three, four, five, five of the huge churches. So if you drive through downtown, there's the big Presbyterian church, and there's the big congregational church, and there's the big Catholic church. They're all big buildings just a few blocks from where we are. Men that I know wrote this to the to the Tribune, as they printed. When at Rosh Hashanah, the Southern Baptist Mission Board called on Christians to pray that Jews would accept Jesus as their Messiah, the Star Tribune offered a helpful editorial, this is the one I disagreed with, a helpful editorial that suggested the arrogance of such an appeal. John Piper's response to that editorial on October 2nd was much less helpful. His words and possibly his intentions were full of goodwill and warm intent, but he failed to see that their effect is to widen the gulf between Christians and Jews, not narrow it. The Reverend Piper, senior pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, claims that Southern Baptist appeal is a profoundly loving act. But genuine love does not harbor the kind of aggressive agenda that is implicit in the visions of Christianizing the world. Love including the agape that lies at the heart of the Christian gospel, is more respectful and less intrusive, more open and less controlling than that. Unfortunately, arrogant is the right word to describe any attempts at proselytizing. In this case, the effort of Christians to win over their Jewish brothers and sisters Thoughtful Christians will dissociate themselves from any such effort. Now, that's the campus that you're on. That's where you live. Any attempt to win another person to your religion has no other word ascribed to it today but arrogance and maybe danger. Because you will foster hate crimes against the people you're trying to win by saying that they're out of God's will and they might perish if they don't believe. And then crazy people will take guns in their hands and go do crazy things. And so you are dangerous. And there will come laws, perhaps, in this country that are, in terms of hate crimes, but worded in such a way that... Any gospel proclamation that requires that another person believe your religion is not allowed in public anymore. We're just that far away from that. And when that comes, which we don't need to speculate about, but should it come, then the stakes will be higher than they are now. But they're plenty high now, aren't they? You know they are because you've, you've tried on, on campus. So confidence in what you say is what arrogance is today. And what you're required from others is that you be uncertain about what you say 
and that you don't commend it to anybody else as something they have to believe in order to be saved. Everybody just do your own thing. And if people want to believe what the Bible says, they can do that, and I can believe what I believe, but don't try to win me to your view. That's arrogant. So, courage is absolutely essential. So the text that was just read, let's go to it. If you've got your Bibles open still or you want to open them, if you can see them, Matthew 10, 24 to 31 is all about fearlessness and courage. We'll read it again. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, the devil, how much more will they malign you, those of his own household? It's going to happen. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you in the dark, for what I tell you in the dark, utter in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Don't fear those who can kill the body but after and, and cannot kill the soul. Fear rather him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. It's plain what the point of that text is. Three times he says it. Verse 26, have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus Christ is speaking this to you this morning so that when you leave this place in a half an hour, you will go into the campuses, into the hotel, into the families that you have to go into, fearless to speak the gospel. That's, that's what he wants. That's why he has... Five incentives here. So when you leave here, all the emotion is gone. All the high is gone. Arguments will not be gone. This is why thinking is so important. Feeling is crucial. Thinking is crucial. You don't live in a day where thinking is prized. I long for you to prize it because you can read a text like this. And if you will think over it, when all the hype of a conference is gone and you will dwell on it and think on it and pray over it, the arguments of almighty King Jesus will come to you with tremendous liberating power. When all the good feelings of the music are over. You're alone in your room, and your roommate's about to come home, and he's going to be drunk again. You want to say something. Arguments from Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit will be what you need. So, let's first see what the courage is for, then look at the five arguments very briefly. What is the courage for? Verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim upon the housetops and don't fear. So the point of this verse is open your mouth. 
I tell you things when the disciples get together in the garden. Now you go tell them in the villages. You get together in a Bible study and you have a great encounter with the word of God. Now go back to the dorms. Now go to the mall. Now go to the peoples of the earth. So you declare on the housetops what I've told you. And don't be afraid. That's the main point. It's all about not being afraid to speak. All right. I tell you, God can work miracles there. If you knew my history. Read the chapter on shame in Future Grace. And I tell my story how I could not speak in front of a group. All through junior and senior high school. Never once. I took C's in classes where I could have gotten A's because I wouldn't give oral book reports. Never took a class office because you have to make a speech. God works miracles, young people. If you want to sell yourself out to Him, He will do wonders. Let's look at the arguments. Five incentives, five motivations, five reasons for why you should have courage. Number one, look at the so or the therefore at the beginning of verse 26. So or therefore, have no fear of them. Well, what is what does the therefore come from? Therefore, have no fear of them. What? The preceding verse. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Therefore, have no fear. Does that logic make any sense to you? If they call Jesus the devil, they're going to call you worse things. Therefore, have no fear. What does that therefore mean? It means if they call you something like they call Jesus, it's a badge that you belong to him. And isn't that more valuable than the badge that you're accepted by the world? Yes, it is. If Jesus means anything to you. And so if they called him Beelzebul, they're going to call you things like that. Therefore, have no fear of him. Therefore. And the therefore means you're with Jesus. You get the same thing he got. It's a sign of closeness and intimacy and being united to him and his smile is upon you. And what can be more precious than the smile of the king of the universe? Incentive number two. The four at the beginning of verse 26 tips you off that an argument is coming. So have no fear of them, it says in verse 20. Five at the end. So have no fear of them for or because nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What does that mean? Now, why is that an argument for not being afraid? Don't be afraid because the hidden will be seen. The covered will be revealed. Well, how, how does that help me? Answer. What that means is what you speak that you learn from Jesus in secret is one day going to be publicly vindicated in the universe. All the lid will come off. All the obscurity will be taken away. Everybody someday, all the people that have mocked you most and are, seem to be ten times smarter than you are, are going to see it placarded before the screen of the universe with Jesus giving his blood sign signature under it and they will bow before it whether they want to or not and you will have spoken it earlier and at that moment you will be vindicated when the truth is vindicated and it will be at the end of the age over against millions of naysayers you will be vindicated so take heart that what 
people say about you now is quite irrelevant because eternity will set things straight. Argument number three, or incentive number three. Fear not, you can only be killed. Isn't that amazing? See that in verse 28? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So my paraphrase is that. Fear not, you can only be killed. What you should fear is the loss of your soul. And when you turn away and are ashamed of Jesus, what did he say about that? Those who are ashamed of me in this age, I will be ashamed of before my Father who is in heaven. Your soul is at stake in getting the approval of men. But to lose your body, what does that do? You know, the worst that people can do to you when they kill you is dispatch you to paradise. Is that a big deal? To dispatch your everlasting personhood to paradise. Make my day. Just get in their face. I mean, pray. this is the work of the Holy Spirit. These are not, it, my saying this is not going to make this happen unless the Holy Spirit is doing this because we know from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 31, that the work of the Holy Spirit in the church in the book of Acts was to give boldness. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 4, they're all praying and the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. If it's going to happen, if you're going to have that kind of gutsy guilt, and I say gutsy guilt because you're all guilty, and the only reason you're not going to perish is because of Christ who died for you, and therefore, in all of your imperfections and sins, you get right in the face of people who say, if you were really a Christian, you would be better than you are. You say, I know I'm not a good person, but I've got a good Savior who's got a great, valuable death for me. And I'm commending Him, I'm not commending me. I know I'll let you down. He'll never let you down. Believe my gospel, don't believe me. Believe Jesus. And when they threaten you, you can say, make my day. Because all they can do is dispatch you to paradise. It may break your parents' heart. There are parents in this room whose hearts have been broken like that. But I'll tell you, I'm a parent, and I have five kids, and only one is breaking my heart. I would lose tomorrow all four kids in a car accident if Abraham would believe. Argument number four. And I hope he listens to this tape. Abraham, if you listen to this tape, would you, you're going to pray for me at the end in about five minutes. I'll just tell you what I want you to pray for. Pray for my son. When I watch these guys out here making music, that's what my son is doing. He's doing it for the devil. He's 21. He's good. I, I looked at these guys. I said, I'm sitting back there at that angle. I'm watching these guys. All I see is Abraham. See, you can do that, son. You can do it. You'd be just like that. You'd be good. 
Do it for Jesus. Would you pray that, please? And if I ever come back, I'll tell you what happened. I think God's going to get him. But it's going to take a miracle. Because he's, he knows my theology in and out. He sat under my preaching for 20 years. So Abraham, if you listen to this tape, I love you. and uh, Don't take offense that I made a spectacle of you here. I think he knows that I do this sort of thing. Not secret my church that my son is is on my heart. Quick, we got to finish. No, two more. Number four reasons to reasons to be uh, courageous. Verse thirty. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Why does that encourage you to be courageous? You know what that means. God is not far away when you're suffering. Emotional suffering of rejection or physical suffering of torture or whatever. He's not far away. He's close enough to separate your hairs and count them and give them all numbers. That's the point of that little analogy. The the hairs of your head are all numbered. Who can number your hairs? No human can number your hairs. And to try, they'd have to get in there and I don't know how they do it. Label each one. Maybe die, die them one at a time. Then when they were all died, count them up. Maybe you do it with a computer. I don't know. But, but it, it implies real close, careful, intimate attention. And that's the point. Your father is not far away when you're suffering. He loves you. He's close. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, says the Lord. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Oh, what great promises we have about the intimacy and closeness of the Lord. Last argument, final one, number five, verse 31. You are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 29, not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. You know what that means? It means... Nothing befalls you apart from your merciful Father's will. Believe in the sovereignty of God, young people. Believe as many theological problems and mysteries as you may see in it. Believe that God rules the world such that nothing befalls His children but what is appointed by His gracious hand. Sometimes tough, sometimes tender, but always love, always love, always love towards His children. Henry Martin, the great missionary to Persia, died, I think, when he was 32 years old, said, I am immortal until my work for Jesus is done. That's true. Some of you will die this year, and some of you will live to your 90, and you will live exactly as long as God wants you to live. And some of you he'll want home earlier, and some of you he'll want on the earth longer. But nothing befalls you. If birds in the darkest, untouched jungle of the Amazon don't fall out of a tree when they're dead without the Father appointing the fall, nothing happens to you apart from the Father's appointment. That's the point of verse 31 and 29. So I'm done. Don't yield to the spirit of the age. And be wimps. Be courageous. We've moved from our desire in God 
through the pursuit of the maximizing of our joy in him, through the dangers that that involves to missions and courage now to campuses and to peoples. And it's time to pray and to commit. And I just pray for you. I thank you so much for giving me your attention. You've been so kind to me and so helpful to me by leaning in and receiving. So let me pray for you. And then the brother's going to come out and take us to the end. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven. Maybe all the Abrahams in this room right now. Hearing of my father's longing. Would hear the longing of their father in heaven saying, come on home. Come on home. There's a party. There's a party in the father's house. I'll kill the fatted calf. I'll put a ring on your finger. I'll put a robe on your back. I'll wash your feet. I'll call in the hands from everywhere and we'll celebrate forever. So all you Abrahams out there and the women who have another name. I don't have a daughter like that, but there's some women out there. Come on home. It's not an easy life. It's a great life. And it will last forever and it will get better and better and better. And when you've come, be courageous to bring others. Give your life to this. I pray in Jesus' name.